This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good evening. Welcome to RAND. I'm Lynn Slattery, Director of Institutional Giving at RAND, and on behalf of my colleagues and our exceptional research staff, Thank you so much for coming. We're delighted to have you for this very special program tonight. The 2016 election is unlike anything we've ever seen before in our lifetimes. And in this polarized, almost tribal environment, RAND's unapologetically nonpartisan research and evidence-based analysis is more important than ever before. The RAND 2016 Presidential Election Panel Survey, we call it PEPS for obvious reasons, is the perfect example of what makes RAND RAND. The cross-disciplinary approach uses social science, statistics, psychology, and rigorous methodology to track and assess the evolution of public opinion, voter intentions, and voter behavior over this election cycle. For those of you not yet familiar with the PEPs, in 2012 it received a great deal of national attention. It was one of the few polls to accurately predict the popular vote. And in fact, RAND's PEPs came within half a percentage point of that popular vote. Pretty impressive. One of the greatest strengths of the PEPs is that it draws on the American Life Panel, which is run by Dr. Krishna Kumar here in our audience, um, who oversees RAND's Labor and Population Unit. In this election cycle, though, the PEPs is going deeper, beyond the horse race and into the psyche of the electorate, how people make decisions and how their opinions change over time. These findings will be durable and will be relevant long after this election. On a personal note, I want to add that I'm particularly proud of this project um, because when a participant is asked to to join in the PEP survey, if they can't afford a computer or they can't afford an internet connection, RAND actually provides a low-cost tablet computer and a Wi-Fi hotspot. And to me, that means we are capturing the fullest range of the American socioeconomic spectrum, not just the people's opinions who can afford to participate. Um, I feel, and and I think the evidence shows, it's more representative of of the American electorate. So again, everyone's voice counts, and everybody has a seat at the policy table when it comes to RAND. So our speakers tonight, Michael Pollard, a sociologist and demographer at RAND, and the principal investigator on the PEPs. In addition to survey methodology around the election, Michael also focuses on the links between relationships and health and work related to veterans. Lynn Vavrick is a professor of political science and communications at UCLA. She's a contributing columnist to the Upshot feature of the New York Times and has published four books. Along with John Sides of Georgetown and our third panelist, Michael Tesler, she's also a collaborator with Rand on the PEPs. Michael Tesler is an associate professor of political science at UC Irvine, and his research has been featured in many prominent news outlets, including the Washington Post. He's the author most recently of Post-Racial or Most Racial, Race and Politics in the Obama Era. And our moderator, Christina Bellantoni, is Assistant Managing Editor for Politics at the LA Times. You may recognize her from her frequent media appearances, including NPR, MSNBC, Fox News, and HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. So before we get started, I just want to add one more thing. A RAND supporter said to me this year that we live in a crazy world, and RAND is in the business of sanity. So with that, let's get down to business. And Christina, over to you. (laughs) Uh, Here, here for sanity. I like that. (laughs) 
Thanks so much. Thanks for having me tonight. It's an honor to, to do this. And it's also a particular pleasure because in my line of work, you know, we're 32 days out from the election. Um, I manage all of the political content for the Los Angeles Times. And we end up getting really tied into the horse race and the just sort of who's up, who's down, who said what. It's a lot of like sturm und drang a lot of times. And I think for me, I really like data. And this is an opportunity to really have a good conversation about what we can learn about the American electorate, uh, where it's going, and also to just understand what the numbers can teach us about where this country is headed. So um, I'm pretty excited to be here. And I'm going to start with Michael Pollard. Um, just tell us a little bit about, you know, what is PEPS? And how is it different from so many other surveys that we hear out there? I mean, every time you turn on the television, you're hearing about a poll. This is not just a poll. Right, thanks. So the PEPS, uh, as was mentioned earlier, in 2012, we did a poll. It was very accurate. But after the election, it's sort of all that information was much less interesting. Uh, this year, for the election, starting back in December, uh, we're following a group of people in the American Life panel, as was mentioned before. It's a project housed in the Labor and Population Unit here at RAND. Uh, we're following about 3,000 people, and we're checking in with the same group of people six times throughout the election season. So we had, in December, I mentioned our first survey. It was a very comprehensive survey. Uh, we're still doing the, the horse race poll stuff, but it's a much smaller focus this time around. The baseline was really interested in sort of before the main campaign messages started getting out, before people really got sucked into the election, capturing what their ideas about different issues in the news were, uh, attitudes about sort of different groups of people, different groups in society like big business or labor unions. Uh, and the goal is to follow these same 3,000 people throughout the election to see how their beliefs and attitudes and intentions to vote particular ways change over the course of the election. So this is one of the ways in which the PEPs is different than other polls in that we're following the same group of people over time. A lot of polls out there uh, will grab you know, several thousand people for this poll. Next poll, they'll grab another different several thousand group of people. So differences between the polls, you can't really tell. Is it just we've randomly gotten different people or is it actually individual level change? And one of the, the most uh, powerful parts of the PEPs is that we can assess uh, to a much greater degree these levels of individual level change. And who are the 3,000 people? How did you select them? So the 3,000 people are a subset of the American Life Panel, which uh, we mentioned before. So the American Life Panel is this longstanding uh, survey that the Labor and Population Unit has been running. It's about 6,000 people. Uh, many of them have been sampled using traditional probability sampling techniques, which means we're able to draw inferences about the national population based on a relatively small number of people. So this includes things like random digit dial calls to cell phones or landlines or address-based mailings where we sort of sample somebody and invite them to participate. People can't volunteer to participate uh, in the survey. So it is this NASHI representative uh, probabilistic sample. And Lynn and Michael, what were your roles in the survey? 
Um, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for uh, having me. Um, but also, thank you to Rand for letting a couple of political scientists come in and crash the election okay. study party. Um, we, I had been following the 2012 work, and in, you know, like about 2014, I said, I wonder if those guys are going to do that again. And um, and I didn't know anybody here, and um, all the people at Rand were w really welcoming and said, Come on over, let's talk. And so we just started a conversation about what might be interesting and different. So one of the things I thought for sure would happen is people like Nate Silver, people like Pollster.com, um, The Upshot I Knew, they were all going to be aggregating polls. And more and more over time, what you're going to hear is ignore any individual poll. Um, and you're already starting to hear that all the time in mainstream media. And I feel like now anybody paying attention knows not to look at any individual poll. The aggregators are really the place where people go to see what's going on in the election. And I sort of thought that, that ALP and RAND was getting lost in that. Why, why just be one more poll that Nate Silver aggregates? Um, and so I, I said, you know, let's, let's dig in and, and follow the same people and see if we can see some changes. Um, and then that conversation was very productive and we brought Michael on board and here we are. So one thing that I'm always interested in is how are we thinking about changes throughout the election cycle? And so one of the things that's so um, incredibly unique about the PEPs is that we were able to get this great baseline survey in December before a lot of the debate takes place, and we're able to measure things like, you know, what do you think of the border wall? And while a lot of stuff has changed when it comes to how we think about the border wall, and to be able to have that pre-election survey um, before the primary start is such a unique tool for us as political scientists to understand how these issues are getting shaped, how the public is thinking about these issues, and how the public is changing its mind about not just vote choice, but about key issues that are associated with the election. And that is really, uh, in my opinion, the most powerful thing about the PEPs. And so you mentioned the border wall as one example, but I am curious, you know, what are the big variations that you've seen so far this year? Um, maybe just anything that stood out to, to each of you, things that really changed how people were viewing this race. Let me start out by saying how much volatility there has been overall, maybe. Um, and so this is one of the things that surprised me and that you can't do if you don't have this kind of data set. And very few people have this kind of data set. So, so you know, despite the, the wonders of the LA Times poll, it, it isn't a panel and it can't do this. And so what we can do is take people's reported vote choice in a Clinton-Trump matchup from December of 2015 and compare those same people to their vote choice today or essentially a few weeks ago. And if nobody moved, then we would see no, no volatility, everybody's being bound by their party ID or something like that. Okay, that rarely happens, but in typical years, something close to that happens. So in 2008 and 2012, by September, 
going from people's December vote choice, you had about 93, 94% stability in the choices. So that means that among people who told us they were voting for Barack Obama in either one of those years, by September, 94% were still saying they were going to vote for Barack Obama. They might have moved around in between, but they're back to Barack Obama. And it was the same for Romney, same for McCain. This year, those numbers are much lower. And they're, they're a lot lower. So the low to mid-70s. Okay, so that means there's a lot of volatility in this race up to this point. Um, and I know that everybody wants to know, like, why and where's it going, <laughs> but just to put a little teaser out there, and then, and then these guys can tell you why it's happening, um, a lot of the movement is into and out of the third-party categories. And the, the don't know, not sure category, but um, a lot of the movement, especially among initial Hillary Clinton supporters, is into those third parties. And so we are, we're seeing more volatility and less stability uh, in the vote choice. So I shouldn't ask everybody to make a prediction by the end of this panel. <laughs> um, well, and how much of that, um, one of the things that struck me about the poll was just how angry people seem to be, or, you know, people are, are voting against something. Um, does that speak to the volatility issue? Uh, well, so I, I can answer that in one way. So we have measured in various ways sort of how favorable or unfavorable people's attitudes are about the candidates. Uh, the majority of them don't feel the top two uh, candidates are particularly trustworthy or moral, and these are historically high levels of unfavorability. So one particularly interesting to me way of assessing this is people sort of say, well, are people voting for one candidate just because they don't like the other candidate per se, or do they actually support that candidate? So one of the questions we asked was actually a thought experiment about, well, if you could, instead of voting for a candidate, you could vote for a candidate or explicitly against another candidate, you still only get one vote. Uh, you saw that about half of the support for both Clinton and for Trump were people who actually just didn't want to vote for the, the opponent. So I think that is sort of a, a stark way of looking at dissatisfaction. Yeah, absolutely. It's something we're seeing reflected in you know, everything that we do at this point. Michael, what were your th thoughts, things that surprised you most about the data? Well, nothing necessarily surprised me, but there are some things that were just incredible that we were able to leverage out of the PEPs that you wouldn't be able to leverage out of another survey. So you may know that Barack Obama's approval rating is increasing over time. And there's a lot of people go, oh, yeah, well, that's because everybody hates the other candidates so much. And Barack Obama himself even joked about this at the White House Correspondent Dinner. He's like, no matter how high it rises, my advisors just can't explain it. And then behind me has Ted Cruz and, 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 Donald, <laughs> and Donald Trump up there. But without a survey like the PEPs, there's just no way of knowing what is driving Barack Obama's increased approval over time. And lo and behold, one of the great things that we could do is we could do a controlled analysis where we say, all right, how do you feel about Donald Trump and how do you feel about Hillary Clinton in December? And pretty much all of the movement in Barack Obama's numbers is among people who had a negative opinion about Hillary Clinton and or Donald Trump in December. And so something like that is is 
where we can really gain leverage in a way that no other survey could possibly do. And so I could stand here with confidence and say, yes, one of the reasons why Barack Obama's approval rating has increased by about five points in the last several months is because he looks good in comparison. And that is something <laughs> that only peps can do for you. <laughs> Um, what about, do you survey on other former presidents? I mean, former President George W. Bush, for example, has also gone up in popularity over the last few years. Who, who else are you asking about, I guess? So we do have a Bush item on one. Uh, we put a Bush item on uh, one survey after Bush decided to hit the campaign trail for Jeb in the primaries, but I haven't looked too much at it. One of the things that you can do, though, and we're starting to do this a little bit, is because the ALP goes back so far in time, is compare these same individuals in 2012 and even a few of them in 2008. So one really cool uh, thing that we were able to do was, um, so I study racial attitudes, and racial attitudes were a huge predictor of support for Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton in 2008. And then we can look at actually the exact, we don't have many of them, but we have some who express their primary, their vote preference for Hillary Clinton or Obama in 2008. We can look at, all right, who changed their support for Hillary Clinton over eight years? That's incredible. We just don't get to see data like that in political science. And the one predictor we had, the one thing that significantly predicted was racial attitudes. And so people who were more racially conservative were supporting Hillary Clinton in 2008, and then they changed change in 2016. And so something like that is where we can really leverage over time comparisons in a remarkable way. And it, it wasn't just a change, right? It was a complete flip. It was a complete flip. Yeah. From Clinton it, to Trump. From yeah. Clinton yes, to... exactly. Well, no. It was from... <laughs> so basically, people, people who were supporting Obama, people who were supporting Clinton in 08... In the, the primary. In the primaries. In the those were not Clinton supporters in the 2016 primaries. And it's a, it's yeah. a pretty remarkable um, switch. The thing, I, the thing I love about this finding from PEPS is that it underscores something that I'm always trying to tell my undergrads at UCLA. It matters who you're standing next to. You know, so in 2008, Hillary Clinton was standing next to Barack Obama, and all of the Democratic primary voters who had high levels of racial anxiety, and yes, they exist, they all flocked to her. But in 2016, she's standing next to Bernie Sanders, a really different guy. She's the same person. Um, and all of a sudden, all those people with high levels of racial anxiety in the Democratic electorate um, are no way voting for her. They're voting for him, and the racial liberals are voting. It's just an amazing, amazing finding that you need panel data to be able to do. Well, and sort of a similar thing to this, uh, because the American Life panel isn't focused on politics, it's uh, about economics and retirement and all these other issues, so things that you don't normally associate with political decisions at all, we still have data mm -hmm. from this. So, Michael, you did one where... It was awesome because yeah. the... <laughs> well, so all this question comes out about, um, you know, who are these Trump supporters? Are they angry? Well, it's hard to know because a lot of times you, you, do, you, you support a candidate for one reason and then you adopt his or her message as your own. And that's a very common uh, finding. One of the one of the really powerful things is, is that there was an American Life panel survey from January 2015 before Trump 
descended down the escalators and was ready to do his thing. And it had this life satisfaction, job satisfaction, kind of what people were talking about Trump tapping into. And lo and behold, that was a strong predictor of Trump primary support. And so pre-measures before the candidates are able to kind of infect them. And that's what happens whenever you look at just a relationship. And so one of Lynn's pet peeves in life (laughs) is when people look at exit polls and say, oh, well, you know, 20% 20% said moral, uh, moral issues were the most important thing. Moral issues must be driving the 2004 election. No, because people decide to vote for George Bush for some reason, and then they work backwards and rationalize their vote. But if you can get pre-measures, and PEPs and ALP go back so far that you can do a lot of powerful stuff that eliminates this kind of reverse causality. One of the other really neat things is thinking about the future – Um, So many people ask me, what's going to happen to these Trump voters? And, you know, where are they going to go? What are they going to do? Are they going to change the Republican Party as we know it? And this particular project is now going to have observations for 3,000 people on how they felt about Donald Trump and if they voted for him. And going forward to 2016, uh, sorry, (laughs) 2018 or 2020, um, you know, we will be able then to go back and see in 2020 how did these Trump voters distribute themselves. And people are really interested in a particular set, this sort of um, older, white, uh, working class, or the white voters whose jobs you know, were lost in the Great Recession, who might otherwise be Democrats or maybe have voted Democratic, uh, but are drawn to Trump because he's got this populist message. And people want to know, like, are they going to go back to being Democrats or are they now lifelong Republicans? And this project is going to be able to trace those people going forward. Um, We're not so much thinking about that now, but it's going to be of huge value in the future. And in 2032, you'll be able to tell (laughs) tell Clinton supporters (laughs) her mother in 2008. Who's voting for Chelsea Clinton, who was a Hillary Clinton? Yeah. So allow me for a minute just to nerd out. Uh, One of my responsibilities is working with the USC Dornsife Los Angeles Times poll and and the process of coming up with these questions, which is a much, much smaller poll. I mean, we do, we try to keep it to 22 minutes. It's on the phone. It's, you know, discreet. um, And it, it is arduous. It can take weeks on end to perfect the questions, figure out exactly what points you want to hit. You know, do you want to talk about race at this moment or the economy at this moment or trade policy at this moment? So how do you all collaborate and do that and decide, you know, what are the right questions now? You've picked these six inflection points over the course of this election. How do you know what to ask? One of the most important things about detecting change over time, there's a saying in survey research, if you want to measure change, don't change the measure. And so if you're investing all of this money in a, in a high-quality panel survey like this, then you want to be asking the same questions over time. Otherwise, you, you're throwing your money away. If you change the, wor- the wording of the question, then maybe that's what's driving the change and not the context, right? Because you know you're holding the people the same and you know you're holding the survey method the same. Everything's the same except time. So for us... You know, we're not so much in the in the incubator trying to think of crazy questions. We did all that work in 2015 and had a really long baseline. Some things you know don't change. And how do we know that? Because there have been decades of academic work on things like your latent attitudes, um, your identifications, 
those things we only have to ask in December because they're not changing. So we had a long baseline, and then the subsequent surveys have been fairly short, hmm. but we keep the questions pretty much the same. And what are some sample questions? I'm just, I'm, you know, very curious. Like, what is it that you're using to gauge people exactly? Uh, well, so it depends on the issue. Uh, for doing the poll numbers themselves, we ask uh, questions a different way than most polls. We do it a probabilistic fashion where we ask people a series of questions, not just who is it you're going to vote for. Uh, if it's things about issues in the news, things like how do you feel about a, a border wall, how do you feel about sending ground troops against ISIS, uh, if it's about other things uh, like policy measures, it's how do you feel about raising income taxes on high-earning individuals, for example. Uh, so th there is definitely a range. Interesting. How are you seeing the parties sort of um, line up ideologically you know, in this, or, or what does the data show you about Americans and their ideological divisions? So this is something that I, that I think is actually really interesting, being a sociologist and not a political scientist. So this is, I think, a great collaboration between the, the disciplines. But one of the studies that we did uh, recently was we took uh, 31 of these different attitudinal uh, and sort of belief questions, and we used some sort of cool math to summarize all these attitudes in a fairly simple picture. And you could see that the Democratic candidates, or at least the voters intending to support Democratic candidates, had a lot of overlap in all these different 31 issues. But when you looked at the Republican candidates, people were all over the place. Like They had very different attitudes and beliefs about a much larger range of issues than the, the Democrats. So it's sort of like Trump had sort of this small part of the overall map that you would assume Republicans are in, and most of the other Republicans were sort of in this other part of the map, and there wasn't a whole lot of overlap. And that's not just social conservatism versus like moderate Republicans. No, so those were definitely parts of the map, but it, so the two main things were general sort of liberal to conservative views and things about uh, your socioeconomic status, your income, your education. But then we had uh, 29 other <coughs> questions like these uh, attitudes and beliefs and how do you feel about different race, ethnic groups, like all this stuff thrown in there. All over the map. Well, I, I did something a little similar and a little different um, in that I was breaking them down by issue specific and um, basically to see where are Sanders and Clinton supporters lining up. And one of the things is we hear all of this distinction about how, ideolo how ideological Bernie's campaign was and how um, you know, are the Democrats moving to socialism? Well, there's very little breathing room, actually, between Clinton supporters and Sanders supporters on most issues. I mean, the one issue it comes out, the one policy dimension it does come out as, is Bernie supporters are less interventionist. But even on economic issues where we think Bernie's bread and butter is, we see virtually complete overlap between Sanders supporters and Clinton supporters. And as Michael was saying, that was not how it was in the Republican primary. 
we see very big gap open up on economic dimension where the more economic conservative you the more economically conservative you are the more you are supporting Ted Cruz and then on these issues of race and ethnicity or on immigration in particular you see very strong cleavage where Trump is drawing in support from people who are most conservative on on racial and ethnic issues how does that line up with the party platforms <laughs> well, so, so this, I think, back in December, we looked at sort of what voters, how they felt about these things. And for me, being sort of naive about political science, I guess, I was stunned at how different the intending primary Republican voters are from the stated messages of the Republican Party. Like, half of them supported increasing taxes on high-earning incomes. Half. Half, yeah, like 51%. Um, a large proportion supported uh, government-funded medical care for all citizens. Like, these are things that, to me, seem completely out of line, but these are also things that predicted Trump. So uh, our co-author, John Sides, and we, we did this three-part piece on Donald Trump's rise and how political science explains it. And one thing is a lot of people were stunned and said, how is the Republican Party, the party of movement conservatism, the party of the Tea Party, limited government, voting for somebody who proposed a wealth tax and who proposed universal health care and uh, says no entitlement cuts. And one of the reasons, this is a long-standing finding in political science of these conflicted conservatives. And so people tend to be uh, symbolically conservative, meaning they identify as conservative, but operationally liberal. When you ask them about specific things the government does, well, there's a lot of conservatives who want government to do things like education and roads and health and all that stuff. And so that is who was supporting Donald Trump in the primaries, in a large, not in large part, but there is a certain cleavage there where your conflicted conservatives said, okay, yeah, this sounds okay to me. And the movement conservatives, the ideologues, they were rolling with Cruz. They were like, all right, that's our guy. And that was a pretty nice cleavage in a way that you usually don't see in a Republican primary because everybody usually in a Republican primary is on board with movement conservatism and limited government and all that fun stuff. One of the other neat things about looking at the Republican primary is that we, in 2008 and 2012, uh, were able to look at how the Republican primary vote divided itself among the candidates. And so small groups like Tea Party members and people who think abortion should be illegal under all circumstances, those are small groups in the Republican primary electorate. Ted Cruz, uh, in 16, will do well among those groups. Rick Santorum uh, did well among those groups. Mitt Romney did well among the bigger groups, sort of the complement of those groups. And so when we went to look in 2016 to see, well, does Donald Trump look more like Rick Santorum or more like Mitt Romney, um, he didn't look like either one of them. And so he was actually doing pretty well among all those groups in the Republican primary, which was a surprise. But it isn't the case that he didn't divide that electorate. He did divide the Republican electorate. He just divided them on a different dimension. And that is the dimension of racial attitudes or in-group, out-group consciousness based on race and ethnicity. 
And one of Michael's other findings that I particularly like is um, showing that Donald Trump has made people's attitudes about race more important in 2016, even in the Republican primary, than Barack Obama being on the ticket wow. in 2008 and 2012 made racial considerations in those elections. And I should let him talk about it, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. So, so I, I wrote two books about how, how Barack Obama has polarized the country by racial attitudes. And one of the reasons why I wanted to work on this project with Lynn and her co-author John Sides, who wrote the book on the 2012 election, is I was like, all right. I'm done writing about race. I'm <laughs> sick of getting hate mail. I want a I want strict campaign. Um, and lo and behold, this has become more about race. And one of the ways we know this, um, and so one of the things we can do is we can look at these effects over time and say, oh, these are bigger than they were in 2012 and even 2008. But then the question becomes, how do we know that's about Trump? And one of the great things about the PEPs is we have these excellent measures of racial and ethnocentric attitudes. And then in March, we do different matchups where who would you vote for between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? Who would you vote for Hillary Clinton, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Bush, all this good stuff. And when we match Trump up against Hillary Clinton, racial and ethnocentric attitudes matter a lot more. So we know that Donald Trump has taken this big divide in the country by race and racial attitudes and expanded it in a way I did not think was possible. And just, I know you guys want to go to questions, but one more thing that's so great about this project is in addition to these race and ethnic attitudes that we had on the December survey, we had a bunch of attitudes about gender because we thought this was going to be an issue. And um, again, in this completely surprising way, and a way that I, I, I'm so proud that this project was out ahead of this, we have people's attitudes about gender measured in 2015. And what we can sit here and tell you now is that Trump has made this election about race and ethnicity more than about gender, but he's also cleaving the, the election on gender. Um, but it's not Hillary Clinton who's doing <laughs> that. It's Donald Trump. Yeah. And so it's just, uh, you know, part of the challenge of writing a project, a survey like this, so long before the election is you do have to anticipate what's likely to be pivotal um, a year from now. And, you know, we were kind of lucky in that way to think that Hillary Clinton might be priming people's racial attitudes. But, you know, it's just dumb luck that those things were on there because it's Donald Trump who has really made people think about gender. Fascinating stuff. Now, uh, we are going to turn to your questions. I will say, obviously, we've got a huge, really um, interested audience here today. If you can make sure your question ends in the form of a question, has a question mark at the end of it, uh, that would be great. Then we can get to as many people as we can. And then there's some microphones coming through the audience here. Great. So if, if you have a question, and we anticipate a lot of folks will, you're going to want to look for myself or my colleague Nancy. Raise your hand, and we'll come over to you with the microphone. Uh, Lynn, at the early part, you were talking about how this 94% or so consistency had dropped into the 70%. And I think you said it's because a lot of people have shifted over to the third party. That being said, the polls, not PEPs, but the polls don't seem to reflect it. The libertarian it seems to be stuck under 15%. How do you explain that apparent dichotomy? 
Well, I think that that, that number is actually quite large historically. So the other category is bigger in 2016. Um, and if you combine others and undecided, it, it's a larger share of the electorate than it is in a typical year. Um, I don't think it means that people are going to stay there. So that's the one caveat. Um, very few people in any election that we've been able to do this, and, and that's like five or six now where we have long panel data, very few people flip-flap across the candidates, like one and a half to two percent. Okay, so people moving into undecided and into other, a lot of them are going to stay home on election day, like half. Okay, these are un, uncommitted, they're not that interested, politics is not something they care about even as a hobby, so they're going to stay home. The other half in history have broken in the same proportions as the electorate. So if your electorate is split Democrat-Republican 60-40, you can be pretty sure that that's how those undecided and other voters will break if they break. This year is obviously very different on so many dimensions, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if it looks very similar at the end of the day. We have a question over here. I was wondering with uh, something on the order of 200 million voters, how you get a representative sample of 6,000 that is truly representative. Thank you. Right, so this is uh, an exciting question for me because I'm kind of taking this on as a methodologist to some degree. But the, the way we're able to do that is through uh, sort of probability theory and statistical theory. So the way you, when you have known probabilities of selecting anybody in the population, which we do if we do it by cell phones or addresses, uh, then you're able to apply sort of these statistical weighting procedures uh, and other sort of statistical adjustments that then allow you to make inferences about the population based on the small sample. You can only do that with properly sampled uh, data. So if it's you go outside and you just ask a thousand people, you can't make any generalizations from that. It's this very rigorous sampling procedure. Oh, we have a question to your left. Thank you so much for absolutely fascinating uh, panel. Thanks so much. I was interested in your comment about <coughs> How you asked the same question, you know, over a longitudinal period, I guess 10 years, but things change so much from point A to point B. For example, if you ask somebody about what they thought about ISIS and whether or not we should get involved 10 years ago, you might have a totally different concept than when you um, watch CNN and see them beheading uh, people and burning them alive. Um, so I'm not. 100% sure that asking the same question over 10 years gives you what you want to achieve. So this is just less than one year. This is since December of 2015. So it's just over the course of the campaign. That's how long our, our this panel is just since December of 2015 till Election Day. And, and it sounds like you, if you ask that question in December and then somebody suddenly changes because they've seen all this stuff on CNN, that's going to be reflected. You'll be able to capture And that's that. what we, we want to yeah. capture, too. That yeah. is, when, I mean, the 
my favorite PEPS finding is that, you know, the border wall has decreased in support over time. And one of the nice things about PEPS is now that's been replicated in multiple media surveys. And so we want to say, all right, why is it that the border wall is declining by nearly double digits in a short period of time? And we can do that. And the answer is Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have a question on this side. Hi. I'm assuming the electorate stays pretty stable from here on in, mm -hmm. except for the in and out of the third party stuff. What kind of WikiLeaks leak <laughs> could upset that balance at this point? Um, I, think, I think none. Um, I am not a, a big believer in game changers. Actually, I think I just want to say, like, if you have ever thought that there were game changers in elections, just take a look at the 2016 campaign mm -hmm. and think about all the outrageous things that have happened and how it hasn't really changed the race in a fundamental way. So uh, I'm a fan of game samers, things like the stability of party ID, the fundamental state of the nation's economy and how it shapes the electorate. Um, and so I think the, there, there's maybe only one thing, if anything, that could fundamentally change the race. What is that? Well, um, you know, I, I, think, I think if, for example, um, one of the candidates went on stage on Sunday night and, you know, fainted uh, and was unable to continue with that, like I think if there was something serious like that or if someone was unable to, to serve if elected, like that's going to be a thing. But you know, WikiLeaks or more emails or, you know, God forbid, a, a, a terrorist event, I think at this point, all baked in. Or, or even just an inflammatory statement on behalf of yeah. a candidate. I mean, do you disagree? I mean, I'm a little bit a uh, bigger believer in game changers, but I think at this point, it is, it's, it's pretty baked into the cake. Um, and by the time, you know, I, who knows when Julia Assange is going to do his thing. Um, <laughs> But he's running out of time. Um, Forty percent of the electorate is going to be it will have voted by the uh, election day, and we're we're get, usually. And I was just teaching my public opinion class today and telling them how rare it is to get something like a shift the way we got out of the first presidential debate. And people are like, oh, it wasn't that big. It was two or three points. Two or three points is, is just monumental in an October level race. And that really took not only a poor debate performance, but really a one-sided <laughs> information flow of negativity for a full week. And that, that type of one-sided negativity for a full week period of time in October is such a rarity. Because, that because people like the good reporters at the LA Times <laughs> do their jobs well and are not going to just tell you one side for a week. Um. Uh, we, we have a question to your left. Hi, I have a question about Brexit and polling. Now... You know, back in June, because I, I followed this pretty, uh, I followed um, that election for about six months, and you know, all the polls the night before were saying that Brexit was going to win, or the Remain side was going to win by four points. Um, in fact, uh, Nigel Farage, I'm pretty sure he conceded right when this thing came out, and then as results mm -hmm. came in, he you know pulled back his concession. Um, and there's been a trend since in. The 2015 Israeli election, the 2015 um, general election for England, uh, for Britain, as well as the 2014 um, midterm election for the United States. 
there's been a trend that the overall aggregate polling has not matched what the end result has been. And I think that was exemplified by Brexit where everybody thought that there was going to be different results. How, why do you think that that trend is happening? Um, and I guess how does the RAND poll uh, you know, alleviate the concerns that might come with something like that? Well, so I can answer the RAND poll portion of it, and then I'll turn over the, the more interesting stuff to you. But the, the RAND poll, so part of why I think a lot of polls increasingly have been having a hard time is just getting appropriate samples is more and more difficult. For example, cell phone, contacting people on cell phones, which is increasingly important, is much, much, much more difficult just in the last year than it has been previously. So I think people have a harder time getting appropriate samples. We have invested a lot of time and effort and resources to get a high quality sample and keep it a high quality sample. So on that aspect, I think the PEPS has a leg up. On the polling portion itself, we're doing a completely different approach to estimating uh, sort of the popular vote compared to traditional likely voter models or any of that. So I think that also might give us a little bit of cushion. Uh, but the biggest thing I would say is that we're not as focused on predicting uh, at all. We're, we're really interested in this sort of longitudinal process that regardless of how the poll itself turns out, that information is still valid, it's still useful. Along with all those things that make it challenging to find people, so your, your typical random digit dial, whether cell phone or not, phone poll, that you hear about reported all the time. What do you guys think the response rate is? So of the people they call, how many take the survey? <laughs> one, okay, it's a little higher than one. <laughs> not that much higher. Yeah, not that much higher, but it's higher than one. So those response rates used to be really high, and that's important um, because you want that, for the reason this gentleman asked the question, you want that random selection of people. The only way it's representative is if it's reflecting if you have more brown hair, brown eyed women in the population, you know, that only works if you're picking them randomly, it only works if we all take the survey. So if there's something systematic about who doesn't take the survey, you've got a challenge. Um, so that, that's one part of it. But the second part on the Brexit thing especially, and things like Eric Cantor and um, all the other ways you can think that polls have been wrong recently, um, is a little bit different, and that's with people trying to guess who is actually going to turn out on that day. And so that is, there's a lot of science to polling, but that part is a little bit art. Um, you have to say, we think the electorate this year is going to look just like it's looked in past years, or we think these millennials are mad and they're really going to, you know, or whatever, but you're, you're kind of guessing at that. And so when you make your prediction, it's a function of who you think is going to turn out. And in a lot of cases, pollsters have recently guessed wrong. And so I'll, uh, um, one of Lynn's colleagues at the Upshot New York Times did this amazing thing where the Upshot did this poll of Florida with Siena yeah, uh, College. The, I mean, it was, it was a brilliant thing. What they did was they came up with their model. And they said, we're going to weigh past vote history and your, uh, what you tell us, how likely you vote evenly. But then they gave the exact same data to four terrific pollsters. And they got four different answers of where the, of where the race stood. 
just because of how much art goes into your likely voters' screens. There's also a great piece on uh, the upshot yesterday where it said, if you see a margin of error of three points, you should really think seven. And it wasn't so much the margin of error that we're dealing with is usually three points from a 1,000-person sample, and that's based on a world of simple random sampling that doesn't exist. And so all of these different types of error, from coverage error to non-response error, are introducing more uncertainty into our world where our margin of errors are not just a simple statistical formula anymore. I'll add in just an example from the LA Times Dornsife Daybreak poll, um, which is it's sort of similar in that it's the same people that we're tracking. Um, they asked people who they voted for in 2012, and then they created their panel out of that to try to get a representative sample of Romney and Obama voters. But people lie. People mm -hmm. forget. People maybe didn't vote. I mean, there are lots of factors that can go into that where you're not actually capturing it, not through any fault of the pollster or the science behind it, but just because people can sometimes be unreliable. The good news, though, is that I, I don't know if you read in Michael's report that the, the PEPs can, can correlate that with what people said in the actual moment in 2012, yeah. and then their reflections, and they were correlated at 0.9. Um, so worry, worry less. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Much better. Okay, here's a question up front. I was really impressed by the PEPs methodology of developing a... Uh, a, a true sampling method that, that makes sense. So with that, uh, I'll put you on the spot. Uh, there are different presidential candidates. What do you think the popular vote percentage will be for each one? <laughs> well, so from the latest wave that we did uh, just before the first debate, mm -hmm. uh, the difference between Clinton and Trump was 10 percentage points, which was outside the margin of error uh, by a, a large degree. So if people are responding to the question if the election was today, you know, so what happens between now and election day is anybody's guess. But and as of that moment, uh, Clinton was in the lead. We have also a question here in the center. My question is about when you're discussing racial bias. When it was Obama, it was one person, very obvious. Today, you're dealing with a racial profiling that brings in people from other countries, not necessarily from people within our own country. How has that affected the way the electorate is reacting? Do you, want to, do you want to tell them the correlation between the Muslim favorability and racial resentment? Oh, well, and so one of the things that is interesting about Barack Obama is, is that Barack Obama himself doesn't just evoke anti-black attitudes, but he invokes a lot of different outgroup attitudes, most notably anti-Muslim bias in a way that no other candidate had before. And before the part, before Obama, the parties didn't really cleave along anti-Muslim attitudes. But this is something that Trump evokes rather strongly. One way we measure it is a measure of ethnocentrism. And so ethnocentrism, basically, we ask 
how you rate a bunch of different groups favorably. And what ethnocentrism is, is how more, if you're white, how much more strongly do you favor whites than all of these other groups? And that measures a very strong predictor of Trump's support. And more importantly, it's a stronger predictor in a Trump-Clinton matchup than it would be in a Trump-Cruz matchup or in a Trump-Rubio matchup. So yes, it isn't just, in, it isn't just anti-black, it is anti-other. And I'll just follow that up, and it sort of touches on an earlier question, too. So a lot of uh, these questions deal with very sensitive mm -hmm. topics. There is this sort of uh, social desirability bias where you don't really want to tell people, I really dislike mm -hmm. Muslims. But it, when they answer our survey, they're not actually talking to a person. They're filling it out on their computer. So they don't have to sort of hold back their attitudes that may be difficult to say, uh, to an actual person calling them up on the phone for a poll. We have a question over here. Thank you. Um, specifically between the first, uh, the first two or three samplings, um, was, there a, was there a major change in responses as Trump gained momentum within the party? So, so one thing is, is that we caught a bit of a bad break in that we went out, if you remember, after... After Super Tuesday, Trump has this big momentum, and then he stalls a bit going into Wisconsin. He gets into a dust-up with Heidi Cruz, if you remember that. And that was, that was one of his low points going into Wisconsin. And so uh, our March measure doesn't reflect huge momentum of Trump. And so that was, that was one where we did have a bit of bad timing. So we, a, do you want to finish your thought? I'm sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> we, we have a question to your left. I'm just curious to hear what was the most interesting, surprising, you know, shocking thing that each of you guys found from the PEPs? Uh, well, for me, again, it goes back to this sort of discrepancy between what I thought the Republican voters looked like and what the Republican voters actually said they looked like. Which is what? Uh, this is the one where it doesn't really line up with the official party messages where uh, half the primary voters, so these are people even more invested in the party than just the average voter, half the people wanted to raise income taxes on high earning households, for example. Um, I think for me it was the, the volatility, the increased level of volatility I talked about earlier. And also, I thought because of that, that the undecided voters in 2016 might look different than they've looked in past elections, and they don't. Um, undecided voters today look very similar to the way they looked in 2012 and 2008, less interested in politics, less engaged. And that was a little bit surprising to me. So for me, it was a, a null finding, a non-existent finding. And it goes back, one of the nice things about having a panel that's typically run by economists is their fun measures, and one of which <laughs> was in a previous ALP measure, was of risk aversion. And I figured, oh, of course, uh, people who um, are non-risk averse would be more likely to support Trump, and that has not been borne out. There is no relationship systematically between risk aversion and support for Trump. And I was like, how could that be? But <laughs> oh, we have a question here. I missed the point earlier when uh, we were trying to correlate the sample group with um, 
the actual voters, did were you able to develop or extrapolate from the sample group to those that will actually vote? So in the sample, we ask everybody what their intention to vote at all is. So we get this self-reported measure of intention. And then we ask them about who they intend to vote for on these various measures. So we don't have, we don't have sort of the actual fact of whether or not they have voted. But one of our uh, graduate school students uh, will be appending this data with, uh, they'll link it to the voter file. So we will know if people who said they vote actually voted. We won't know who they voted for, but we'll know whether or not they actually went out and voted. So then we'll be able to sort of do this post-mortem analysis. And I do apologize, but it looks like we've got time for one last question in the center here. What are the statistics on voting for female? So, so generally, you mean how do people, do they express, is there variation in uh, their express Between vote? men and women, voters? Oh, okay, so I, I'm sorry, is it, are you asking, is there a gender break in terms of support for candidates in general Absolutely. or for Hillary Clinton? Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, there's a there's a gender gap, um, and there has been for several several elections now. Um, women uh, tend to be more democratic than men. Um, this year, in particular, there have been some breaks. Uh, white men without a college education have been slowly moving to the Republican Party over time. Uh, they continue that move in this year. White women. Uh, have not been following that same trend. And then, on top of that, in 2016, white women with a college education have massively shifted toward the Democratic Party. And even white women without a college education have moved a little bit toward the Democratic Party. Um, and so I think the movement among women in 2016 is about this particular race. And it's not about Hillary Clinton, it's about Donald Trump. The movement among white men is just the tr continuation of a long-time trend. So Trump has made this about gender uh, for women. Um, Hillary Clinton has not. Okay. Do you disagree? No. Okay. And the one way we know is the peps is because we do these matchups where we match the same candidates for Bernie and Hillary and whereby putting Trump in a matchup really activates racial attitudes. Putting Hillary versus Bernie... We're getting similar effects in terms of gender. Fascinating stuff. Uh, let's hear it for our panel one last time. Thanks so much. So thank you, everybody. Thank you once again. You guys are amazing. Thank God you do what you do. The country needs this. Um, thank you, everyone, for your support and for being with us this evening. Uh, we have a great lineup of, of programs this fall, policy discussions on all sorts of important topics, and um, not least of which being our signature event on November 11th and 12th, Politics Aside, featuring Malcolm Gladwell and Soledad O'Brien, walking us through what the heck just happened in the election. So um, we hope we'll see you there. Thank you, and have a good night. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, 
visit us online at www.rand.org events.